I'm Jeff Murphy from Boston University Alumni Relations, and I'm your host for an interview series showcasing the career paths of our most interesting and accomplished alumni. Welcome to the Proud to Be You podcast. My guest today is Jeremy Shore, a managing director at Silicon Valley Bank. Jeremy graduated from the School of Law in 2003. After leaving BU, he went on to co-found the Emerging Companies Practice Group at a national firm and direct the innovation practice of the world's largest privately held media agency. At Silicon Valley Bank, he leads the early stage practice for the East Coast, which brings together his expertise in startups, venture capital, and law within the innovation economy. On this episode of the podcast, Jeremy talks about finding opportunities to fuel his entrepreneurial spirit, what it means to be a Kaufman Fellow, and how he can scale his impact as a partner to startup founders. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for making time to be on the Proud to Be You podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Great to uh, great to be on. I'm excited to talk to you because it seems like you you play this critical linchpin in kind of like the startup ecosystem, but I know kind of nothing about it. How do you explain to people that you're meeting for the first time, maybe at a dinner party, uh, who know nothing about kind of the startup world, what it is that you do? Sure. So I am a managing director at Silicon Valley Bank, where I manage our East Coast early stage practice. So just by way of background, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is a global bank, and we are a bank for the innovation economy. And we work with, in the U.S., the majority of tech companies and the funds that invest in them, so the venture capital funds. How do I simply explain what I do? When you think about tech companies, I try to put to the side this concept of being a banker, and rather I think about how can I best be a partner to help founders accelerate their success. And so I work with tech companies, and as many in the world would call them startups, on things like business model, hiring, investment strategy, customer strategy, and ultimately elevating uh, the startup ecosystem in multiple geographies. So when you think back to who you were as a kid, uh, the kind of things that you loved, uh, were there any, can, can you look back now and see that there were signs that you might get into this kind of work? Yeah. I mean, I think thematic to my life has been this concept of being in service to others. I very much view the legal profession uh, through that lens and I view my, my current role uh, through that lens as well. So I know you went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad and then came right to BU for law school. Did you kind of always know that law school was going to be part of your plan even as you were an undergrad? Yes. I mean, I I jokingly say I had a kind of thoughtless path into my career. And by that, I mean, I went straight from uh, undergrad to law school and then from law school to to big firm uh, in New York. Um, the, The backstory there is that I was I was a high school debater. Um, I was not very good my first two years. I got my butt kicked every way to Sunday. Um, and we were debating philosophy like, like Locke and Kant, Hobbes, Rousseau. And, um, and I was, you know, the folks that do debate are really, really bright kids. And I thought of myself as more of an average student. Um, and so what I figured out between my sophomore and junior years was that I didn't have to be the smartest in the room. I had to be the best at connecting with the judges and telling a story that they could uh, digest. And so when I made that tweak, I, I became one of the uh, one of the top high school debaters uh, in the country my, my junior and senior years of high school. And so in doing that and, and being strong at oral advocacy, I just kind of had this concept that, of course, I'm going to go to law school um, and continue kind of leveraging that skill set. 
So finishing up at UPenn, how did you end up coming to Boston and BU for law school? I'm guessing that you were looking at a lot of other programs, but I'd love to hear how you landed on BU. Yeah, I was. I think what really um, pulled me to BU was the student satisfaction in the professors. BU had, uh, this was back in uh, 2000 when I came out of college. Um, BU back then, as it does today, uh, the professors are so well known as just being um, really tops. Um, and uh, and so for me, it was really critical to, to learn from the best and, and BU's professors uh uh, fit in that category. And, and the idea of, of going to Boston, I, I kind of made my way up up the East Coast um, through school. And Boston was a town I hadn't lived in, and it was an, an exciting one. And so uh, those were the reasons I, I headed to Boston. And as you're talking... Oh, sorry. And I'd, I'd add one other, yeah. the clinics. Well, I, I was attracted to the idea of being able to do uh, either the civil or criminal clinic. I wasn't sure when I applied which one I would ultimately do, but just to get some real practice uh, as, as a student. So as I hear you talking about BU, it sounds like the, the classroom experience met your elevated level of expectations. Are there specific professors that you remember sticking out? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one professor in particular that um, had the biggest impact on my time um, as a law student, and that would be Professor Ward Farnsworth, um, and he's now the dean at UT uh, Law School. And what's really interesting is that I never had Professor Farnsworth as, as a teacher. Um, in my first year, there was some sort of a an, uh, student auction um, to raise money for, for a charity. And, one, and, and the professors were auctioning off uh, different things like dinner at their house. Um, and Professor Farnsworth was offer, uh, auctioning a one-hour magic uh, tutorial. And I thought that sounded kind of cool. And so I bid on it and I got an hour with Professor Farnsworth, who for other students who had him said he was one of the greatest professors they'd ever had. And so I had an hour with Professor Farnsworth and we, we dug in on kind of talking about magic. And it was such an interesting hour that we ended up ultimately finding a rhythm where every Tuesday from three to four, every week we'd spend an hour together and we'd talk about magic and we talk about other shared interests like uh, the guitar or, or playing chess, but he really became a, a teacher for me in the study of magic, which I know sounds a little bit silly, but conceptually to be successful in, in magic, right? Um, it, it requires being a really good storyteller and professor Farnsworth is one of the best storytellers I've ever met um, and really being able to engage an audience. And so um, I, I always go back to that and I'm just incredibly grateful that for someone as busy as he was uh, to take the time to meet with me every week was, was pretty powerful. So I can only assume that as you were wrapping up your law degree, that he was somebody that you were talking to about your future. Maybe there were other folks at BU, but tell, tell me a little bit about the sort of decision-making process as you're wrapping up your law degree about how you decide what you're going to do from there. Again, I, I jokingly go back to thoughtless path, but by that, look, when I was coming out of law school, it was 03, the dot-com um, boom was was bursting, and um, everyone, many were, were focused on going to big firms, um, and I just kind of fell into that, this idea of going to work at a big law firm in, in New York City, which is what I did. 
Um, and after about two years of, of practicing at a big firm, um, I had hoped to do something more entrepreneurial. And a fantastic firm uh, that is uh, headquartered in Florida, but a, but a national firm called Ackerman, um, was opening an office at the time in New York City. And there were six partners, and they hired me to be the associate, so seven of us. And we opened up the office, which is a second or third year law student. It was was pretty exciting because I, I'm sorry, first, second or third year law uh, uh, associate. It was exciting because I then got to wear a lot of different hats and was, was not delegated to doing work by being a, a first year, or a third year, or a fifth year. But any associate work that needed to get done, I kind of um, had the opportunity to do. And we, we grew it to about, I think it's about 150 lawyers today. I've had the chance to talk to some other BU Law alumni, and I, I think those first couple of years out of school are some of the most interesting. What would you say? I, I know you were, I think you were working at uh, King and Spalding as that first firm out of school that you worked for a couple of years. Yeah. What are the lessons you learned there? What are the, the things about being, you know, working full time for a firm that were maybe different from what your expectations were? What advice do you have to, to folks coming out of law school now who are staring down? those first two years of being an associate? Yeah, a couple of things. One, it's certainly less glamorous than it is made out to be. Those first couple of years as, a, um, as an associate are, um, are pretty grueling from a, from a work-life balance perspective. But I suppose that the real advice I would give is to, to speed up. Sometimes you have to slow down. Um, I think the allure of working for a big firm is certainly powerful, as is the the salary that comes with it. But at the same time, when and this goes back again to the early 2000s, so it could have changed. But my view is that those first couple of years, the the work that the attorneys are doing is really uh, not exciting stuff. Um, it's a lot of diligence. It's a lot of document review. Um, which of course has to get done, but my suggestion is to think about other other ways that the law degree can be used, um, where one can cut their teeth and and, and really learn a tremendous amount. Uh, for example, going to the Manhattan DA's office would have been an incredibly exciting uh, journey, um, as well as today. I think much more so than when I graduated was thinking about how to how to wear an entrepreneurial hat and do something where you're able to use the skill set of being a lawyer um, and that thinking, but not necessarily um, practicing initially. So does that interest in, you know, entrepreneurial spirit sort of wearing a lot of hats? You mentioned this experience at Ackerman kind of founding the office there. Does that, is that the, the experience that sort of sets you down the path you eventually find yourself on in terms of emerging companies? You know, I can actually point to, I think, a day um, where there was this really big mind shift. Um, I, have, I am driven by uh, things like legacy and impact. And by that, I mean building something that is bigger than myself and, and leaving this place uh, in, a, in a better way than, than I found it. And so I, in, in kind of the mid-2000s, late 2000s, I started to give thought to where is, where is this happening the most? You know, where is all of this impact hap- is happening and legacy being created? And it, it was really happening in the innovation economy. And so I took a took a lawyerly approach to this, I suppose, and, and I went on Twitter 
um, in early days and I identified four or five people who were in the innovation economy as, um, you know, general partners at funds um, or, or founders who have had both successful exits as well as uh, challenges. And I picked four or five of them whose worldview I, I, I really found compelling uh, and who engaged. And I said, okay, I, I'm going to make it my job to sit across the table from these folks and get to know them and hopefully learn from them and potentially even uh, develop a mentor relationship. And so one of those was a an investor who lives in Boulder, Colorado. And I was spending a day in Boulder with this investor, and, and he suggested um, hanging out for another day and mentoring an, an accelerator program, uh, a startup accelerator program called Techstars, uh, which he was a co-founder of. And so I did that, and I said, well, I'm a lawyer. I'm not sure what I have to give these startup founders. And his feedback was, everybody has something to give, right? You just have to figure it out. And so that first day of mentoring uh, tech startups, um, I kind of went to what I knew, which was um, how can they refine their their presentation and their storytelling? Because I was a litigator by training, and so that was stuff I was able to help with. And this was this concept of give first, right? Giving without the expectation of anything in return. And so I did this for about 10 companies one day and I finished it. And I said, that was, that was one of the most powerful, awesome experiences I've had. I want to do as much of this as possible. And so I started mentoring um, a, a ton of companies and ultimately started the early stage practice um, at Ackerman where I was working with, uh, with founders. So this involvement with Techstars was just kind of a side passion project. Is that correct? Yes. And has since really become a big, a big part of kind of my personal and professional life, but, but really on the personal level. Um, some of the folks at Techstars are, are really some of the brightest and, and kindest people I know. So I think if I've got my dates from your LinkedIn profile correct, you're at Ackerman in 2013 when you helped found the Emerging Companies Practice Group. Yes. That's a brand new venture for the firm. Uh, tell us about some of the successes you had with that initiative. It was a lot of fun to create something new for a firm that had been around for quite some time. I think some of the the big, biggest successes were similar to my role now, which is looking at a, a business and figuring out which, which piece is commoditized and which piece um, is not. And so from the legal perspective, uh, as a lawyer, look, you, you can do the incorporation docs and, and the bylaws and, and give advice on um, things like tax implications, right? But those are in many ways off-the-shelf documents, and so that service is somewhat commoditized. The real impact was happening when um, I was able to be similar to this role, be a partner to the to the uh, founder, and to help the founder think through how are they going to raise their seed or Series A round, um, how they should be thinking about you know potentially filling a board and which board members um, would be good fits for them, as well as just unpacking. Um, their decks and kind of refining the, the, the pitch strategy so that they could uh, go out and raise a meaningful slug of capital. So you've made kind of this transition from, you know, lit standard traditional litigation into this work supporting, uh, as you've called it, the innovation economy. Was At any point was there, do you look back and see a single decision that you made that kind of put you on a different path or that really helped accelerate your career? I think it's hard to point to one thing. I mean, I think 
life is just kind of an amalgamation of, of, of a, a whole lot of decisions. Um, I mean, the there's one decision that I point to in my life as the best one, which is the the um, the decision. Well, it was her decision, but my asking my wife to marry me and, and her saying yes, that was certainly the best decision um, I've ever made, and, and also the the luckiest for them because she said yes. Uh, and we do have three uh, fantastic. Uh, fantastic children as well. So can you tell me more about um, the the sort of unfolding of the last few years of, of your career in, in working in emerging companies and uh, eventually ending up at Silicon Valley Bank? Yep. So I've been at Silicon Valley Bank for about two and a half years. Um, and I work with um, a number, uh, significant portion of the early stage companies in New York and in Boston. Uh, and I've got teams in both cities um, who are just tremendous. Um, they're they're you know as kind as they are smart. And so when I joined, I really wanted to kind of think about take take a somewhat data driven approach to say um, where is the most exciting stuff happening in these markets, and um, ensure that I and my team are adding value to these founders and to the, the ecosystem overall. And so in many ways, that's been an, an exercise in creating, in many ways, the epicenter of content, right? And by that, I mean starting to host founders as often as possible um, for discussions, fireside chats, breakfasts, on things like how to think through making your first 10 hires, demystifying the concept of fundraising at the seed pre-A and A rounds, as well as figuring out how to help. I mean, founders, fundamentally, there's there's three things that, that keep them up, right? There's the raising capital, there is hiring, and there's getting customers. And so those are the things that I focus on quite a bit um, in terms of how at scale, and scale is the key word, to, to help um, the companies uh, that, that we're lucky to, enough to work with. I know that you also have um, had the chance to be a Kaufman Fellow. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that experience and how you got connected to that? Yeah, um, Kaufman is a two-year fellowship um, based on the concept of smart connected capital, and um, it's a it's a highly competitive uh, fellowship. I suppose to get accepted to, um, they take approximately fifty to sixty folks globally. Um, the vast majority of whom are kind of at the top of their game as investors. Um, and it's a truly diverse class um, in every sense of the concept of diversity. And diversity and inclusion have been thematic um, to a lot of my work over the last decade. And so the Kauffman Fellowship is an opportunity to really learn from some of the best in the innovation economy, um, really around the world as well. We We meet quarterly for about four days. There's uh, a lot of work that goes into uh, the program kind of when, when we're not meeting. Um, and for example, I'll be in Tokyo in, in two weeks uh, for our, our annual uh, global global module, um, which I'm looking forward to. But ultimately, Kaufman, look, Kaufman is trying to help us become our best selves. Um, and I'd say personally and professionally, it's focused on career planning and thinking about what do you want to get out of the next two years? What do you want to build? Um, and really focused on something called the zone of genius, which is to say, where is each person in the program? Where is their ability to make outsized impact? Where are they uniquely positioned to do that? And then how do you do as much of that 
in your job as possible. So you've got this kind of underlying theme of being a storyteller, though, and I, I know you've also been a writer and a blogger. You've, you've been putting stuff up on HuffPost and have been a writer for Inc.com. Is that just another passion project for you? Is it, it purposefully sort of positioning yourself as a thought leader in the field or how does that all come about? No, I don't. I don't want to say it's purposely. I mean, well, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed reading. I've always enjoyed writing. Um, and so for me, it just kind of comes a bit more naturally. And um, it is, I do like to put content out there. Um, I probably should be doing more of it. Um, but, you know, we get we get busy, right, as they say. But, yeah, I've just – I've always enjoyed doing it. And so there's so many great platforms today. I mean, the one I'm really excited about is called Medium as, as a great place to, to put out content, which is where I've been doing most of mine uh, recently. So in the time that you've spent in the innovation economy, what lessons have you learned about kind of the skills and personality traits that it takes for somebody to be successful in building an early-stage company? I think initially – buying into the idea that it's going to be a roller coaster, that there's going to be a lot of highs and that there's going to be a lot of lows. And that's just fundamental to any company, no matter, no matter who they are. My hope is always to, to talk to founders about not tying one's own self-worth to the successes or failures that inevitably come with um, the life of a founder, because there are days where there's incredible highs and incredible lows and neither for the company and neither of those actually say whether someone is a, a, a good person, a smart person um, um, or not. And, and so just from, you know, I, I think a lot about the mental health um, state for founders and really do hope that they take to heart that, again, crushing it or failing as a company certainly does not equate to the same uh, as the individual. But then to be successful, um, look, I think that a founder has to uh, operate uh, with a pretty thick skin. Um, and and if they are raising capital, more often than not, there's a whole lot of no's, but it really takes one yes. And so it's being able to kind of have some grit. Um, I think the word hustle is sometimes overused, but, but in this case, you know, ha- have hustle. But but really have conviction. Conviction is the thing I, I, I think about most. Um, for founders, it's it's not drinking their own Kool Aid, and it's being in love with the problem that they're solving and not the solution that they've created. Because it, if you're in love with the solution and you start to lose sight of the problem, then then the company can can pretty easily go sideways. But when I talk to founders and I think about investability, I think about is there a pain point that the founder has articulated. Does this founder have the ability to get through the inevitable challenges that will occur in order to solve for this problem? And are they able to inspire others both to join as employees and as investors? I'm thinking, too, about the fact that you brought up that you've got a wife and three kids. Is your industry set up to allow for working parents to be successful? Is it just a constant struggle to, to balance both of those things as a dad and, and a successful uh, employee? I don't think it's unique to my industry. I think today I'd simply say that technology makes it so that people are um, kind of act, they're on more, tw- they're, they're on 24 seven, 
where, you know, look, when I started practicing law on my first day, we, we got a BlackBerry and that was the first time I ever had an email device. And this was 03. And now everyone is attached to their iPhone 24 seven. And so I think the challenge to, to everyone that's working is to simply um, be present with family, right? Or with friends. For me, I try to create guardrails where there's certain time that's sacred time. And by that, I mean, I'm with my wife, I'm with my kids, and I try as hard as possible um, not to not to be kind of glued to the phone and, and checking email or responding to email. And I mean, look, ultimately, email is... In some ways, it's everyone else's to-do list, right? Folks are sending you emails on their time. And so it's just creating guardrails for oneself as to when they will be on and um, not being 24-7 if if the job allows for that. Well, it sure sounds like you found yourself a career that allowed you to draw on both your your sort of natural skill set, the things that you like doing, and being able to have the kind of impact that you've said you've wanted to have. Not that you've been with Silicon Bank for terribly too long, but where do you see this kind of going for you? And do you foresee any other kind of forks in the road in your future? It's a good question. I'm not expecting other forks in the road per se. Like the innovation economy, I'm I'm always evolving um, and always looking to scale the the impact that I'm making. I think when I look back on this, on this whole dance that we do, that is life, just to ensure that I've been kind of the best spouse the best dad, the best friend, and uh, and then the best colleague as possible. And, and, and that, if I've been able to do it and, and make impacts and really ultimately build something bigger than me, then I think I will have succeeded. But it's a journey. It's it's a The whole thing is a journey. And um, so long as you're making progress, uh, then, uh, then I think you're okay. I think that's a great lens to look at everything with, Jeremy. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Oh, it was my pleasure. And uh, thanks so much. Reach out anytime. Thanks again to Jeremy for joining me on Proud to Be You. If you're interested in learning more about Jeremy and his perspective on the innovation economy, you can find links to a few of his published articles in the show notes of this episode. And if you're curious about what BU is doing in the startup and acceleration space, be sure to check out Innovate at BU and the Build Lab at bu.edu slash innovate. Thanks again for listening to the Proud to Be You podcast. If you like what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Proud to Be You wherever you download your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash alumni slash podcast.